You are listening to Trial by Stone. Trial by Stone. How very interesting. I'm your host, Philip, and with me as always, my best mate. I say mate because I'm Australian, that's how we talk there. My great buddy, Jamie. Jamie, how you going? I'm going well. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm sorry. That was the worst Australian accent. No, that was great. That was great. Phil will love that. He'll love it. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> Nothing much. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We've yeah. been talking about you for a long time. More of us wanted to be on this episode to talk to you. But, of course, <laughs> we're dealing with time zones across continents and oceans and Look, states. You don't have to make that up, man. If the other guys don't want to be here, that's cool, man. <laughs> get it. No, but uh, I, in this episode, I, I well, as we were discussing who to speak with and when, and Louis has been like, interview the the puppeteers, interview the puppeteers. No one's talking to them, and we're like, we're trying, we're trying. So, uh, getting everyone, you know, again with time zones and everything has been uh, very interesting. However, top of the list has been you and Donna Kimball. And uh, Donna, we talked to you last week, or I did, and this week I, I was talking with Phil and Ethan, my you know co-host, and I was like, it doesn't matter who is going to interview Victor, I'm going to be on that interview. But uh, it ends up I, it's just you and I. <laughs> I am honored to be included. It's kind of to me. Absolutely. Again, thank you. Um, so I want to go through this interview talking about your how you got into puppetry, whether you're an actor first, those types of things, and then we can move into how you got on Age of Resistance, and then we can go into what that was like. Well, I have only 14 hours, Jamie, so <laughs> let's let's get through it, man. I want to cover right, everything. All right. I want to cover everything. You've been working with Henson. And for many of us, of course, the fans of The Dark Crystal, you are an unknown. What's your journey? How did you get into puppetry? Did you just call me an unknown on a nationally <laughs> syndicated podcast? I did. I'm sorry. I am hurt to say the least. Um, no. So yeah, puppeteers are kind of, um, you know, kind of always unknown, I guess, um, to some degree. Um, besides, you know, like maybe Jim Henson and and you know Frank Osbeck in the in the early days. But but yeah, you know, it's kind of one of those art forms where um, we have this sort of uh, joy of of being able to work on these high profile, you know, shows, TV shows and movies and, and yet have the anonymity of, of uh, nobody really seeing our face too much. So, so it's kind of cool. And, and, um, I was actually a classical music major in college. I studied percussion and I loved playing percussion, but I also wanted to try other things when I graduated. So I started writing kids songs and I eventually got an internship at Sesame Street, which is which is how I would come, uh, become connected with the Jim Henson Company. So I worked there as an intern um, in their music department for a while. And then uh, I started uh, getting interested in the puppetry part of it. And um, there was a, a guy there named Tom Spina. Oh, I'm blanking on the name of Tom's company. Tom has this really great replica company. Um, it might be Tom Spina Designs. But anyway... Uh, he was he was an uh, the same time that I was, and he was working on a puppet project. And he said, "Hey, do you want to come work on this thing with me?" I did, and we ended up. You know, I was studying acting, I was studying uh, voiceover, and I had a music background. And puppetry was just another kind of um, opportunity to perform. 
and that's the one that sort of uh, took off first for me, so I just kind of stayed with it. And so, in terms of staying with it, how did that lead you to Henson? Because you were working with them before, obviously, the Dark Crystal, or of course, the Dark Crystal. Right. So, so I was working for Sesame Street, and then Ed Christie was the head of the Muppet Workshop at the time, and I met him because you know that the the Henson Company would build all the the puppets for Sesame Street, and they were still heavily involved. And um, so I I met Ed out on set, and when the season was ending, um, I had been contacting the Jim Henson Company looking for work because I decided by then, like, this is what I want to do. I want to be a puppeteer. I love it. You know, I had a blast working with Tom. And so, uh, so I interviewed with Ed uh, to be an assistant in the workshop, and that was my first job for the Jim Henson Company. I was working, you know, fixing phones, uh, computers, and you know, copying puppet patterns and just whatever office stuff they needed done, but with an eye on on puppetry. And um, even when I I interviewed with Ed, you know, he was a little reticent because they they would often get builders that wanted to perform and. You know, they wanted people to stay in the shop. If you were a builder, they wanted you to be a builder. And um, there wasn't a ton of crossover, at least in the New York shop. But, you know, I told him at my interview, I said, look, you know, as an assistant here, I said, the only thing I might move into production or some other, you know, management sort of position, I said, but I wouldn't stay, you know, here as an assistant anyway. So I said, I just want to move to a different department. I just want to move to, to puppetry. I don't know if he was just being nice to me or what, but he he sort of – uh, accepted that and was and was really just amazing to me. And he had performed freedoms in the past um, as a, when they would do live events. Sometimes they would have um, backup performers do those. And so they called him at some point um, because they needed someone to cover freedoms. And Ed gave them my name, which to this day, I mean, is one of the kindest things anybody's done for me in my career because. It was taking me away from the shop, away from helping him, which is what I was hired to do. But he knew it was what I wanted to be doing and, and you know, my sort of dream. And, and so he gave him my name. And so I ended up, you know, I trained with John Henson, who was the principal uh, Sweetums performer at the time. And I was there at the workshop and over at his house as well. And, and that was, I guess, my first um, official Henson gig was doing um, live events as Sweetums, which was, which is- was amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. That is awesome. Let's back up a little bit further. Let's go. Let's talk about uh, what, when you were a kid, where was puppetry, whether it's the Muppets or Labyrinth or Dark Crystal, where was that in your consciousness? When, when did you first fall in love with that kind of thing? Yeah, so I, I always tell people, you know, that puppeteers usually fall into one or two categories. There's There's the people that have played with puppets or dolls since they were little and always put on shows and always loved the Jim Henson company and wanted to be a part of it. Um, and then the other half is people that are actors or performers that just kind of fell into it. And I'm really part of that, that second group. Um, I certainly remember seeing bits of Sesame street when I was a kid, but I think my real first awareness of liking puppets, um, was, uh, was the Muppet movie. I think I'm sure I watched the Muppet show as well, but really watching the first Muppet movie, I just remember loving that and just not thinking like, oh, puppetry is a great thing. Just thinking, oh, that's a great movie. So I just loved it for, you know, for its, 
you know, for its storytelling and all that stuff. And then I'm pretty sure I watched Dark Crystal. I know I did. I remember being disturbed by the podlings being drained. And, you know, I remember the Skeksis ripping off um, Chamberlain's clothes. Like, so, I, you know, I, I remember those sort of more shocking, you know, kind of scenes. And I remember the Gartham. The Gartham scared the holy heck out of me. Um, when I was a kid, I just thought the sounds they made and, you know, they were so big. It's just like th those guys scared me. And I remember um, I remember the story. I remember Jen and Kira and the mystics. But I, you know, again, for me, it was all just, you know, that I liked um, the stories and the characters. It was I, I didn't think about the puppetry and the puppeteers. And it wasn't until I was in college that I really started watching Sesame Street a lot because of the music. I loved the music and I liked writing songs. And that's why I got that internship at Sesame Street because I wanted to write kids' songs. Um, I think I forgot to say that part. <laughs> that, that was the main reason I started working there is I wanted to write children's music. And when I, when I started watching Sesame Street and I started to be able to really recognize the voices, I could tell when it was Jerry Nelson and Richard Hunt and, and Frank Oz and Jim. And, and I sort of vaguely kind of pictured some guys in trenches or I was like, boy, they must like dig holes in the ground. Like I didn't really know how any of it worked. And when I got my internship at Sesame street, that's when I first saw it. And I think my very first day was a Muppet insert day. And on the, on the insert days, there were no humans. It was just puppeteers. So they raise all the sets up and every, everybody was standing and the, and the sets were all raised. And I was like, Oh, that's how they do. It was really mind blowing to me. And then when I started working there and working for the Jim Henson Company, then I like went back and I started watching The Dark Crystal and every episode of The Muppet Show. And I they had a library in the workshop that you could go through. And I just went and watched everything. I watched The Storytellers and Labyrinth. And I just loved those, um, you know, more creature, um, you know, creature based uh, movies and, and shows and thought that was really cool. And I and I really appreciated and loved all the. The, the typical sort of fleece foam puppet stuff too. But I really think, I, I think the storyteller is probably what grabbed me the most. And, and at that point, I definitely was aware of the puppetry and who was doing what and how it worked and figuring out how they did stuff. And I just, then I was hooked. I, I loved it. That's awesome. So as we continue on your journey uh, and, you know, I know that you're, you've been involved in, I mean, just looking at your IMDb and just, following a little bit along with what you've been involved with. Like, so when age of resistance was announced, which was by that point, it was announced to the public. Of course it had been in pre-production uh, slash production for a while. Well, maybe not production, but at least the planning stages. How did you come aboard uh, in a role like that? How did you uh, find yourself auditioning for the character of pup or did you audition for that character or did it fall into your lap? I did. No, I, man, uh, that would have been nice. It did not fall into my lap, but I, I, I pushed for it. Um, so, so I, at that point I had been working for the Jim Henson company uh, for a while. And I knew, you know, Brian and Lisa and, and the producers, you know, I knew Rita Perugi, um, and all the sort of regular players. And there'd been rumblings of a dark crystal project for, you know, over 10 years. It was, you know, weirdly, they, they had this Dark Crystal 2 sequel on IMDb. And I know they had my name on there as a puppeteer. They had like three puppeteers listed. I feel like it was me, maybe Alice, Deneen, and 
I don't even know who the third one was, but like, I was never a part of it. Like it was just one of those random things that some fan or somebody added a name and IMDB didn't check it. I don't know what it was, but they had me listed on there ages ago. But I, you know, never expected to work on this or, you know, it was one of those jobs. Like when you get in this world of puppetry and you're kind of a regular puppeteer, shows come around and, and you know, I, there's a good chance you get to audition for them. You don't get everything, but you get to work on a lot. But those sort of epic projects like, you know, A New Dark Crystal, those are like, you know, few and far between. So I definitely did not expect that that, that would happen. But what did happen was um, – I started hearing that they were going to be doing a test uh, pilot for it. And so I called up Rita or emailed her and I told her, you know, oh man, I'd love to work on this and how many people are you going to need? And, and they were just starting to put it together. And so, um, Kevin clash was our, was our, um, lead puppeteer on it. And he brought me on and I got to do, uh, a podling in it, which was really cool. Um, uh, but this was knowing nothing about, Age of Resistance, knowing nothing about scripts, and the podling was not Hup, it was just a podling being drained. Um, and and we did it, and that was it. And then I heard the show got picked up, and I was like, oh, okay. And now what do I do? I got to get on the show. I got <laughs> So I started, I started, you know, asking, and um, one of our executive producers, Hallie Stanford, who's one of my favorite human beings alive, and and somebody who not only has just brought an incredible amount of projects to the Jim Henson Company. But also just been such a big supporter of mine over the years. You know, I, I talked – well, first I talked to Lisa Henson and I said, I said, so I heard this show's happening. And she's like, yeah, it's going to be shooting in London. And uh, and uh, and I was like, oh, oh, that'd be great. Then we can all go to London, right? And Lisa was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can all go to London. Sure. So we knew that wasn't happening. But, um, but I asked Hallie about it and she said, well, here's the thing. She said they're only taking Kevin Clash – and Alice Deneen. They were the only two Americans that were going over as puppeteers. And um, she said the only way that, that you'd be able to audition for it is if they can't cast one of the roles. And luckily for me, that's exactly what happened. They found, you know, there's so many great puppeteers over there, uh, m most of whom who worked on The Dark Crystal, um, but they just didn't find someone that they loved for Hup. So they ended up doing American auditions and, uh, and I auditioned for it and, and, you know, um, it was, there was no podling language at that point. It was all just written as the, they would write the English words that Hupp was saying, but you would do them as gibberish. So you had to kind of just make up your own gibberish. And I was really comfortable doing that. We, we'd done a lot of improv shows, um, at the Jim Henson company with a group called Puppet Up. And so I was used to doing improv gibberish. I was comfortable with it. And I just loved the character and just thought he was sweet and hilarious and and so yeah auditioned and uh luckily they chose me so in the audition process you know i'm very familiar or somewhat familiar with how the audition process goes in terms of actors you know formal actors actresses yeah. uh with puppetry are there callbacks like how did that work well, I think it's different. It, you know, every audition is different. I know in London they did have uh, callbacks, um, and so they sort of whittled down their group to the to eventually what was the core. It was twelve core puppeteers, three Americans. So they whittled it down to the nine, um, the nine puppeteers over there. Um, for us, I think it was just the one audition. And you know, one one funny thing is that in, when they did the auditions in London. 
they had them all in the same room together, which is really unusual for auditions. So they all watched each other. And I think that kind of worked in my favor because whoever did the first, you know, couple of HUP auditions kind of set the tone for what it was going to be. And it's hard once you hear somebody do it one way to kind of really go a different direction. So they all kind of were hearing each other perform. And when they did the auditions out here, they asked us, they were like, oh, do you guys want to be in the room with each other? And we were like, no, of course we don't. <laughs> I don't want to see other people's auditions. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, so I had the benefit of going in, having not heard what anybody else did. And I just did my own thing. And, uh, but yeah, you know, it's a typical audition. They gave you sides, you go in, they have a camera and a monitor set up and, and they had a puppet. It wasn't, I don't even remember what the puppet was. It certainly wasn't Hup. It was probably a little, you know, foam head guy. Maybe it was a pod thing, but, but it you know, certainly wasn't the finished puppets. And, and we were just, you know, doing lines and back and forth with somebody off camera, just like any on camera audition on camera actor would do. So who was in the inner, in the, the audition with you, was it like Lisa and Hallie and Louie or who was watching you? Uh, Louie was, I don't think Louie was there. I had met Louie doing the pilot. Um, so I certainly, you know, uh, had gotten to know him a little bit, but, um, I know Hallie was in there. I'm sure Rita was in there and that might've been it. There was probably somebody running camera, but I don't think Lisa was in there. I think it was just Rita and Hallie and, uh, and whoever was, you know, kind of running the, maybe Ashley Griffiths. I'm not, I'm not sure, but somebody was running the, you know, the audition. Um, and then just me. Yeah, there was uh, that was it. So you do the audition and where do you remember the situation or the circumstance when you finally find out? Yes, you're going, you got this role. You're going to England. I don't, I'm trying to remember where I was standing. I know it was Rita who called me. I was either here at home or I might've been, um, I think I was, I was actually here at home and I saw the phone ring and I saw her name and I knew she was either calling to tell me I got it or I didn't get it because, you know, like I said, I've worked there a while and, and I, it's very possible. And they, she did call the other puppeteers and tell them that they hadn't gotten it. So, you know, I, I, I picked up the phone and she told me right away and I was just like, I mean, look, you know, it's a once in a lifetime project, you know, as, as puppet shows go there's nothing as epic as this and this is a tv show i mean it's really 10 movies you know but I, for for my career i knew as soon as i got that call i knew leading up to the shoot i knew throughout the shoot and i knew after the shoot that this was a once in a lifetime pinnacle of my career type job and i was just humbled and and blown away and and just you know so grateful and I could not wait uh, to get out there and do it. It's just, you know, unbelievable, unbelievable um, opportunity. Sail at your command. Uh, I don't like him either. Come on, Hop. This will be fun. Nishi. Nishi. As a viewer and someone who has had a little peek behind the curtain, it's just, it's still, uh, unbelievable and i can't believe that it exists it's it's a miracle of a show um yeah. and it really it really got better every step of the way you know um i after that call um they had read throughs of the scripts here in in los angeles and they only had myself and donna um were the only two puppeteers and then everybody else was like voice actors and and theater actors and people that they brought in 
And man, reading those scripts was like chilling. I was welled up with emotion. I was excited. Um, and we read five one day and then five uh, a couple of weeks later. And I was like, okay, well, th- I mean, those aren't going to get better. Like, th- I mean, those scripts were just like, you, you can't beat that stuff. And then getting over there and seeing, you know, the puppets and, and, and the scale of things and, and these sets that were made, it was just like, and the props, like it was unbelievable. Every, every new bit of information I got just reinforced that notion that like, this, this is, this is as good as it gets, you know? And, and it was incredible, uh, start to finish. How did you go into discovering Hup's voice? What was that process like? Well, that's a really good question because I don't know if you know this. I, I think I've said this in a couple of, of interviews, but his voice completely changed. So the, the voice I did at my audition, I thought, um, you know, would be – I thought it, I, I would go with my own voice. I made it a little bit higher. And so he was kind of like, oh, it's a bright moon. Yeah, it's a bright star. You know, it was just it was just kind of me, but a little higher. And when we did the read throughs, they everybody in the room loved it. They laughed. They thought Hup was great. And we went and we shot for nine months with me doing that voice. And um, and then like nine months into it, uh, the producer Rita told me um, Lisa Henson wants to have lunch with you. And I was like, oh, Okay. (laughs) Like, you know, I know Lisa, we're friends, but like, we don't like hang out. Like I haven't gone bowling with her. Um, and so, uh, you know, I I figured it probably wasn't great news, but, but I didn't know. Anyway, we had lunch and, and she was like, so, you know, Netflix is not, um, loving the voice. And I was like, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God. Because, you know, we had gone into it. They had told the puppeteers ahead of time that they were going to be replacing most of the voices with, with celebrities. So we knew that, but they had also told me because it was pondling language and all this stuff that they were, they really liked my voice and they were probably going to keep my voice. They didn't promise me. It wasn't like in my contract, but they had told me like it was, you know, probably going to be me. So that was just like, Oh, what's happening? What about it? So I script. I was scrambling to, that's why I say like, you know, when, you know, that I pushed for, for the character, um, I pushed to get that audition and I pushed to keep my voice in there. You know, they were so supportive, um, Lisa and Jeff Addis, and they all wanted me to stay the voice, but, but I had to find something um, different. And, and, you know, they, the direction was that they, um, wanted him to be uh, funnier, more funny and a little bit older which is really how he's written. He is written um, like they told me he was going to be the the, uh, the sort of you know comic relief um, before we came over to London. But in reading the scripts, I thought, oh, he's so sincere. So I was performing everything really sincere. I wasn't really going for the comedy as much. Some th- some scenes we were, but but anyway. So we wanted to find a voice that matched that. So I think I auditioned like seven or so voices, and they picked two or three that they really liked. And then we put it on camera um, for the for the folks at Netflix to see. And I always uh, I thank um, Daisy Beatty so much. Daisy was one of our assistant puppeteers, and she assisted me on Hup um, a fair amount. Um, and she did that audition with me. 
Um, and I, and I was like, I told her, I was like, okay, Daisy, here's what's going on. Uh, they might replace my voice. So, uh, I have to do something really great. And can you just uh, practice this scene with me about a hundred times? And so we can go. To the- <laughs> and she was like, yeah, you're going to be great. Don't worry. And she was so sweet to me. And so anyway, we did it and everybody, everybody liked it. And so, you know, it went, I'll tell you, it went oddly quiet for about a month and nobody came up to me and was like, Hey, you got it. You're, they're going to keep you. And then, you know, I'd asked Jeff at one point and he was like, yeah, I think people like it. Uh, you know, we're kind of still waiting. And I was like, Oh my God, I was just sweating every day. And then Jeff just kind of casually came up to me one day. He was like, Hey man, so, um, I think they're going to keep you for hop. So that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Oh my God. Uh, so anyway, it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was amazing for me, incredible that it all worked out. And I, you know, I, I have so much respect for our puppeteer, our core puppeteer group. A lot of them, their voices are in there, um, to different degrees, but even when their voices aren't in there, their performances are so strong. Um, the acting is so strong but for me, I just felt like once that other voice is in there, it's just erasing half of me that I put into it. And I just wanted, I just wanted to be, you know, the whole, the whole character. Um, and so anyway, it was, I'm again, honored and just touched that they, that Jeff and Lisa and Hallie all fought for me and, and that they kept me in there in the end. Or, or maybe they were lying and they said it was Netflix and really they are. <laughs> but either way, yeah. Either way, I was glad it worked out. <laughs> to to one point that you made in terms of what you found out about the character being comic relief and the voice, and they wanted to make it make him funnier. Oddly enough, in terms of the reaction to the character, certainly my reaction personally, but the reaction from fandom, he is not perceived as a comic relief. He is so earnest and so himself and so brave. People don't see him that way at all, which I think is a testament to certainly your performance and your voice performance. And I feel like as a viewer, it would have done him a disservice just to have been the comic belief, belief, the comic relief, because he's in so many ways the heart of the show and to have relegate of course he was as you know i'm speaking to the choir here but he's there's so much going on in him who he is where he's coming from what he wants to accomplish who he wants to be and that story is the story of all of us in many ways and for me he ended up being my favorite character of the show he's just absolutely profound and going through those those Going through kind of you to say, Jamie, thank you. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Like I, uh, as I was watching, I mean, and I seen, of course, like everyone else had seen the, some early clips or some photos of Hop and he sort of looked stoned. You didn't really know what was going on. He was very funny. Um, so there's no context, but then finally when you have context and he's ends up being best buddies with Deet and of course that, that, big scene that you have with Deet where Hup breaks down and he starts crying and he's, you know, he's doesn't, he just feels like he, he's not good enough. He, he can't do it. It was really, really powerful. And I started crying at that moment and it was, and I'm not much of a crier and it just really spoke to me. And that, again, uh, just a very, very powerful, very successful character. And, uh, and I, I hope that you realize that and I'm sure you do. Um, but I at least wanted to take the time to say that to you. 
Well, hey man, that that really means a lot to me, and I I, I really appreciate that. I, I've been getting so much nice feedback on the character, and I and I have to tell you a couple things. Number one, um, I never take it for granted. I I really am so grateful. All this like incredible fan art out there, and and just people's nice comments and what you just said. It really it really does mean a lot to me. Um, also, I have to say. As much as I get credit for the character, um, number one, he was written so beautifully by Jeff Addison and Will Matthews and and Joe Lee, who you know we have to talk about the whole podling language and everything. But the entire you know team of writers and Javi and um, all those guys created this character before I did anything. So you know you read the script. Sometimes you get on the show and you read a script and you're like, oh, that's good. Maybe we can punch this up. I read, you know, the Hub stuff and I was like, I mean, how are you going to write a better character than this? He's this little guy who is on this big journey. He's, he's brave. He wants to help. Um, he's got his little spoon. Like, you know, that, that was where I started. On top of that was the design, you know, from, from Brian Froud and then, you know, Pete Brook doing the, the um, 3D, you know, sculpting of it. And so... And then, the, and then the shop building that beautiful puppet. So, so I'm grateful, but also very aware um, that so many people, you know, go into creating a, a character like that. It's not false humility. Like I really do, like just you know, it, you you start from a point like that. There, you can almost not go wrong. But I, I have well, for, I, I want to tell you a, a funny story about that scene. But but I also wanted to say that um, when you were saying. You're right. There is a lot of that sincerity in the writing, and it's both. You know, it's it's the sweetness and the comic relief. And I think they weren't feeling both. They were getting the sincere stuff, but not the fun stuff. And so, really, what we did there, I didn't really change entirely how I was performing him. I just changed the voice a bit, and I added a little more physicality to the to the funny scenes. Like some of the stuff we shot last was the Circle of the Suns. So, like Hup falling off of the bench and falling asleep and, you know, a, a lot of that stuff. And him, like, there's a thing where he's bowing. He keeps bowing to everybody when they all bow once. Like, I started, <laughs> I started yes. throwing that stuff in to try and bring more, you know, physicality and funniness. And then when we did the ADR, we ADR'd the whole thing. Um, we changed a lot of it because a lot of it was was more in podling and less English so really, um, Louis was there for some of it. Jeff was there for all of it. And we really worked, Jeff and I really worked hard to figure out the right balance of English and podling and also to add those comedic moments to make his exacerbated, you know, harumph a bigger one or make his, his laugh a little different. You know, we just tried to find those little vocal things we could do to tweak that performance and... In the end, in the end, it all worked out for the best. I think it's a better uh, voice and a better character than had we stuck with the original um, idea. In honor of Gelfin. Louder. In honor of Gelfling. More wonder. <laughs> in honor of Gelfling. No, never mind. Come on, that's enough. Thank you. Thank you. The writing on the whole is spectacular and just beat from beat to beat, character to character, 
it's flawless. It really, really is. And everyone works so well together. And I, I thought maybe we could, I'd like to definitely go into the language because of course, Huck speaks the podling language the most, or we hear it the most. Wait, um, James, before I forget, can I just tell you, can I just tell you a quick story about that crying scene? Sure, sure. Because this, this really makes me laugh. So, so we were, we did that scene and, um, you know, I had mostly with puppeteering, you get to do like kids shows that are very sweet and, and fun and funny. And you get to do like kind of adulty puppetry, which is more, you know, uh, CD and that kind of stuff, but you don't usually get to do these great dramatic scenes. So for me going into this, I was like, all right, I want to try to do this scene really real. And, you know, I had studied acting and I was like, I'm going to really prepare for this scene and try and really get my place myself, try and really get myself in a, in a place of sadness or whatever. So when we did the scene and, and Louie knew what I was doing and, you know, the cast kind of knew what I was doing. So I, so I just was off to myself and then, you know, like, like as you would as an on-camera actor, I prepared and I came out and we did the scene and I had some, you know, I had tears in my eyes and I was, you know, we do the scene and we'd cut and they make some tweaks and we do it again. And there was one moment when I was off to the side, it was, you know, we'd been shooting it and, and I, uh, I was, you know, there sort of trying to stay in, in this moment. And I'm sure I looked like a wreck and tears in my, my eyes and everything. And, um, Helena Smee, one of our, you know, principal puppeteers who was assisting Deet in that scene, she came over and she like kind of started rubbing my back, like to console me. And her sister Kat Smee, who was my assistant, was like, no, leave him alone. He's working. He's working. <laughs> that is, by the way, that's a perfect impression of Kat. That's exactly what she sounds like. <laughs> um, but, but it was just so funny, you know, that, 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 you know, that, that Helena felt bad and like Kat was trying to like, let me do my work. And, um, by the way, Kat's me, um, best, uh, she's, she's one of the best puppeteers just overall on our show, but as an assist, like, you know, a person who does your hands, she was Hup's hands for uh, the whole like first half of the shoot at any time I could get her. And then everybody else just started stealing her away from me and Kevin stole her for Agra and I barely got to work with her at the end. Uh, but she really is just, you know, I, I, I give her tons of credit for how Hup looked also because she was uh, just fantastic. Yeah, I, I, again, just every every character, but certainly Hup, uh, just flawless. And, and yeah, I really, his journey really is, I've, I've had a, even personally a very difficult past couple of years, and he really, his character really spoke to me and continues to. Um, and it's interesting when puppets, well, I think that's the magic of puppets where they, they enable us to let down our guard. They enable us to be vulnerable for whatever reason, for whatever reason, the, the, everything that creates them, even though they're these essentially inanimate objects that become animated, whether we're watching the Muppets or whatever, there's something about puppets that allow us in the right space take down our guard and you're right I, you know it's a it's a 3d you know cartoon or or animated character that's come to life that's now in the real world or the world of thra three-dimensional world and i'm not happy that you had a, a two unhappy years but i am happy that uh that he spoke to you and and that really that really does mean a lot to me i'm interested in i do again i do want to get into the language but i i 
Can we describe, well, what was maybe the most challenging day for you? Maybe not emotionally like the scene with Deet where the breakdown, but what was maybe the most physically challenging scene for you? Or was it all physically challenging? You mean with Hup or just the whole show in general? Well, I just mean you're, it could be with Hup, but I don't know. Maybe just, uh, I mean, because Hup is in, you know, Stone in the Wood. He's in the Circle of the Suns. He's in... uh, you know, he's at the castle and of course these are all sets and you're, you know, you're holding your hand up and, you know, everything's raised up. Was there any specific scene that was harder for you to puppeteer more than another or is it all about the same? You know, it's funny that the show certainly was very physical. You know, we worked, you know, full days and we would do, there was not a lot of downtime in between takes. We would just do a lot of consecutive takes and the lighting was so good on our show that we were never most you know TV and especially on films you're you're waiting hours and hours for lighting we never waited for anything and that's you know a testament to our our cinematographer Eric Wilson who's just who was also our one of our two camera operators along with Louie and and um you know so so anyway the point is just that we went at a really fast pace and one of the hardest days i can remember was not something that i looked on the call sheet it didn't seem like a big deal it was the stone Stone in the Wood uh, soldiers, you know, uh, head down the stairs and, and, you know, off into battle or or they were, you know, going to the castle or wherever they were going. It was just like eight or ten puppets running down the staircase. And, man, I feel like we did that a hundred times and it was all with this, like, urgency. So your adrenaline is way up and your muscles are tight and you're trying to, like, keep these puppets looking right. And so I just remember (laughs) doing that scene and being like – exhausted from just doing that. We were covering about 15 feet of space over and over again, just down the stairs and back up and down the stairs and back up. And that was hard. Um, I did, I was lucky enough to perform the ritual master. Um, and so being in the Skeksis, you know, is always tough and he's got a really big, um, heavy head. And so the first scene we shot with him was, the scene where they're all where, where Mira is killed and they're kind of celebrating. And then um, he looks over his shoulder and sees Rianne. And in later episodes, we, they developed this sort of head support where there's a tube going up that would keep it from slipping off of your hand basically. But in that first scene, um, he, it, we didn't have it. So I had to hold the grips with all of my strength to keep the puppet from falling off but then also had to do lines. And what happens is you just fatigue so fast. And my hand was shaking and I was like trying to do these lines and this like close up shots and things and hit these little marks. So that was certainly, certainly a tough one. Um, Hop, I don't, I don't know if I really had any really difficult scenes. It was, it was always so much fun. And even when it was intense and emotional, you know, I really enjoyed it. He was one of the smaller characters and because of the way he was set up, I got to perform – I was doing his eyes, his his facial animation, you know, blinking and squinting and eyes left and right. I was doing that myself. It was mounted on his left arm rod. So all the timing of the performance – like it wasn't a lot of like trying to coordinate with the person doing the face, which a lot of, you know, of our puppeteers, you know, had to do. And it just takes a little more time and a little more um, working out of scenes. But – I didn't have to do that stuff. I, I just was able to kind of figure out ahead of time how I wanted the scene to play and then take notes from Louie and, and, and um, try to, you know, sort of execute his vision. And, 
And, um, so yeah, Hub was really just a joy. I mean, it, it never, never felt like drudgery at all, um, performing him. Was there, in terms of, I know you puppeteered Kylan and a little bit of Mitchin as well, but the going from podling to Gelfling, obviously Gelflings are a very different type of creature. It's less comical or, uh, less, Maybe that's the right word in terms of the actions. How was that going from essentially, well, I mean, three different separate creatures? You have the, your podling, your guffling, and then your skexies. Well, you know, now that you mention that, I, I was talking about what was physically hard, but the truth is the guffling were by far the hardest to perform. Um, and the reason being that the physicality of them falls apart so easily. Like with the skexies and with the podlings, you know, you can be big and you can be. Um, with the polings, you can be a little bouncy, like kind of like typical Muppet, Muppety style puppetry. Um, but with the Gelfling, you know, because they look closer to human and because that uncanny valley is something you're always fighting against, if you, if you move them a lot, they look fake and puppety and too bouncy. And if you move them just, you know, not enough, they start to look like dead dolls. And so I think all of us struggled with finding the right movement for the Gelfling. And so, yeah, Kylan was certainly challenging because of that. And I remember one of the first days we were shooting, we had spent like, we had done like rehearsal days where it was all just about how do the Gelfling walk and trying walks and trying to, you, you move your body in a different way. Instead of bouncing with your arm, you really keep your arm more rigid and you kind of walk with your, with your, your feet. And so that's not something we typically do with puppets. So there was a lot of like working out the perfect Gelfling walk and it was like really like precious and intense and everybody was like so serious about it. So when we shot this first scene with these two guards running in, we were really just rehearsing it. It wasn't even a shoot day. It was the day before we started, but they wanted to shoot some stuff, you know, to test it. And so I came out, I think Kevin did one of the guards and I came out with the other one and I did this big goofy side to side walk. Like, to, cause I thought, you know, I was just goofing around. I thought it'd be funny and break the tension, but I didn't realize is that like Lisa Henson and Brian Froud and like, you know, Jeff and like everybody was like gathered around the monitors watching really intensely as our first Gelfling scene was brought to life. <laughs> and there was just like panic ensued and people came to set, uh, uh, who's puppeteering that Gelfling? Uh, yeah. Well, what's, uh, can we, uh, settle that movement down a little? <laughs> it was like, <laughs> everybody was, uh, was in a panic. And, and Wendy Froud told me later that, that Brian had said to her, like something like to the effect of who's this jerk like doing, <laughs> doing this <Gelfling. laughs> and then later and then later realized I was kidding and, and knew who I was and was like oh okay like yeah, that's kind of funny but uh yeah they were tough they were tough to to make them look real um and also um you know like I say keep them from looking too still it was certainly uh the biggest challenge puppeteering wise doing those guys I, I I can only imagine, and as, again, as a viewer, um, you, we know what's right and we know what isn't. Especially, I mean, I'm not just a viewer; I'm a hardcore fan, so I really know what to me what looks right. And uh, I, I can't imagine just it's often like theater. I mean, it is theater, but it's theater on a macro level where you're everything is on display, and the wrong just the wrong arm movement might look like oh that you know its arms twisted. You know, I, I just there's so many there's so much minutia and yeah, but well, well, I have to shout out my my fellow cast um, who who really were the main 
Gelfling performers, which is Neil Sterenberg and Becky Henderson and Alice Deneen and Helena Smee and Dave Chapman and, and work Brownlow Pike, like those guys and Ollie Taylor too. I mean, and gosh, well, I'll just say everybody, Kevin Clash. Uh, let's see, Damien Farrell. No, those guys who, who did the, the Gelfling, um, all the time, uh, were really, uh, got very good at it very fast. And, and, you know, Alice's and, and Neil's and, and Becky's and Helena's performances just really stand out and, and are so strong. And then, you know, while I'm talking about the cast, you know, Ollie Taylor and, and Kevin Clash and Damien Farrell, you know, doing, um, Kevin doing Agra and then, and then all the guys who did the, um, the, uh, Skeksis were just incredible. And our Dame Louise Gold, who not only, uh, reprised her role as the gourmand but also did you know Madra Argot and and voiced that character I mean you know you're talking about like the best puppeteers in in London and and you know I just it was such an honor to work with all those guys including Kat and and you know our supporting team and everybody it was just it was just like you know it was a an embarrassment of riches I would say um, in terms of puppeteers on that show. Yeah, uh, agreed. So moving into probably the more difficult part of not so much puppeteering, but you're, you're, you're talking and you're not talking in English. Mostly you're talking in podling and, uh, it's a fascinating, wonderful language. It's very funny to hear. Um, yeah. and it, it sounds somewhat familiar, but of course it's not familiar. And I know J.M. Lee or Joseph Lee came up with the language and, uh, to to note that song that you sing, which I really I wanted to get into for a minute in the beginning. Uh, what is it? Episode four? No, no, it's episode. Yeah, episode four. Okay, it is episode four. Is is absolutely gorgeous. It's primordial. And how did that song come about? Who? I'm sure, obviously, it was in the script. But in terms of melody and all of those things, how much input did you have? So, um, none, uh, in terms of melody or words, that was all, um, I don't know if it was Daniel Pemberton or, or Samuel Sim that wrote, I think it was probably Daniel who wrote the music and maybe Samuel, I'm not sure if he wrote the melody or who, who, who broke down, but that came from the music folks and, and the text all came from, from Jolie and, and I'm sure the other writers had a hand in it, but, but, um, well, they wrote what they did was they wrote an English version of it, and then Joe translated it. So, so they more than had a hand in it. I think I think Jeff Addis probably, with Will, um, wrote and created it, and then Joe translated it and created the Polling version. But um, yeah, that song. I remember when we did the read-throughs. It said in the script it had episode four starting the same way it ended up starting when we shot it, and it said that this this song we hear this voice. And, and, you know, we hear this song and we come down and we find Hup. It said um, something like voice of an angel, face of a potato. Like that was, <laughs> that was that was my introduction. But we when we came and when we recorded it on set, um, we hadn't changed the voice yet. And so I sang it as sweetly and earnestly as I can. And it was it was more like um, it sounded like. Tindiebo bek nastaba. 
do like it was me trying to be like really sweet and sincere and then when we changed the voice and he had like all this like gravel set you know this like huppy huppy sound in his voice as jeff would call it he would say can we get make it a little more huppy once once we got to adr then we had to record it and we recorded it a bunch of different ways and like we recorded one kind of similar to how i'd done it on set where it was just you know me really just singing and then we did once with a lot of you know, gravel in the voice and we tried different variations and I, and it was really hard because that to do that voice, like I'm clenching the back of my throat and it's like, you really, you're pinching like as much as you can. So you have to really push um, the air through. So to sing quietly, but keep that gravel is a tough thing, but we did it and we got a take that I really loved. I was like, Oh, that was the one Jeff. I was like, we got it, man. Right. You happy. He was like, yeah, let's just try one more. I was like, okay. And he's like, I want you to do one where it's more emotional and like, it's okay if the voice cracks a little and I was like, all right, I'll try, you know, and we did it. And like the pitch kind of went out in a couple places. And I honestly don't know what they used, if they used a complete version or bits and pieces of different ones. But I, I remember after I was like, Jeff, please don't use that one, man. Please don't use the emotional one. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think, I think he used parts. I, he probably used the whole thing or parts of it. It, it was beyond my control, but I, but we did spend a fair amount of time, in the ADR session, really trying to, to find that, that blend of sweetness, but yet still sounding like the character. And, um, that was, that was a challenge, but, but after we, when we were on set and we shot it, you know, um, Kevin Clash, who was our lead puppeteer, um, usually, you know, for most of the Hup scenes, a lot of people weren't around, like it was just Hup and Deed or that one was just Hup by himself. Um, and, you know, so a lot of the other performers either didn't really didn't get to see me do most of my stuff, but Kevin had watched all that and he came up to me afterwards and he gave me a hug and he was like, that was so beautiful what you just did. And, you know, coming from him, I mean, it really meant the world to me because, you know, he's someone who's, whose puppetry I admire and have admired for years. And um, so anyway, it was just a nice, it was a nice moment in performing it on stage and it was a fun moment ADRing it with Jeff and, and I really love, uh, I love how it came out. Yeah, it is really beautiful. I, I would hope at some point, maybe, I mean, the Gelfling songs and Hup song aren't included in terms of the actual character singing those songs on the score. And I want that song so bad. <laughs> um, there's a whole, there's a whole nother song that we recorded that got cut. That was in episode, I want to say eight. It was eight or nine, but basically they initially had Hup as part of the final battle. And then for a bunch of different reasons, they decided he would stay behind and they were like, oh, we need more for Hup to do. So they wrote this whole song that he sings for the, to the, uh, not to the wanderer, to the archer while the archer is just laying there. And it was really beautiful. And we were, we shot it, um, but it wasn't on main unit. It was on our shadow unit. Um, but it's shot and recorded and done. I don't know if that'll ever see the light of day or, or maybe they'll reuse it, you know, if they're, if we're lucky enough to get another season, but, but that one was also beautiful. And and I hope they release all these translations too, because what these songs actually mean, there, there's, there's words, uh, you know, English, uh, translations that go with it and it's beautiful. They're really, both of them are beautiful songs. Yeah, I, I can only imagine how the other song singing to the archer would be. Um, in terms of 
the actual language, what was the process for learning it? And you're not just, of course, learning. I mean, you're learning language with dialect and a character who's grown up speaking it. So you have to get into that space. How, what, how long was that process and how difficult was it? So I have to mention my buddy, my hero, Joe Lee, who created this whole language. Um, like we got, when we got to, to London, Joe had sent this document, which was like the grammar and rules of podling and what vowels get accented before other vowels and, um, and a whole, um, additional dictionary of podling separate from the script, which had lines and translations as well. And I mean, I just love the language he created, you know, um, the sad, the sad part is that I was basically away from my family for most of that shoot and, you know, my wife and my, my three uh, beautiful little girls. And so I was like, I had all the time in the world. I was lonely. I hated being away from them. So I was like, well, I guess I'll study the podling dictionary. So I had so much time to like, you know, learn podling basically. So I really, once I got over there, I would just stay up at night and, and try to memorize all the A's. And once I had all the A's memorized, I memorized the B's and then the C's and I'd go back. And I think I made it through the O's. I could I could do them all from A through O. And then I was like, oh, I don't know if I can really do the rest. So I decided to go to the Z's and I started working my way backwards from the Z's. I don't think I ever made it to O, but I, but I learned, I would say I learned a good 75% of that dictionary just for, for memory. But really what I was doing um, besides uh, killing, you know, time until the next shoot day, I was, um, I was making it part, I was making it second nature to me so that when I was saying the words um, on set, I wasn't trying to remember what, what, you know, word I was about to say. The meaning was already in my mind, you know. It starts with like you reading the word and then looking at the English and kind of going back and forth a little bit. And at a certain point, your mind just clicks and, and it, it starts to learn it. But like any language, you know, you can't really fully learn it unless there's someone to talk to. There's nobody else that speaks bottling apart from maybe Joe and Jeff. But so, so I, I really, I couldn't hold a conversation, but I, but I have a lot of, uh, a lot of random words in my head. I can say, I guess. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, it's funny with um, the original, well, I don't know how original it is, but or in terms of when Kira speaks podling and you hear the podlings, you know, in the original Dark Crystal film, um, it's there's some similarities between, um, I think, I can't remember what language it was. It was sort of based off, was it Serbian? It was Serbian and maybe Turkish. Okay. Was there um, any of that, uh, any of those remnants in the, the new version that uh, Joseph Lee created? You know, it's, that's a good question. You know, for my, for my audition, um, I watched, you know, the, those piling scenes many times. And the voice that always stuck in my head was Jerry Nelson. And you can hear him really clearly when Kira first gets there going, Kira, minya, Kira. And, and to me, it was like this kind of like, almost like Italian-y, like sort of, it was really more the spirit of the podlings that I felt like he had than, than, the, than the particular accent that I was drawing from it. But I think Joe did take a lot of that stuff into consideration. Um, and I think um, what he 
what he tried to do was make it a, a language that was really reflective of the people, like of the Podlings. It was like a simple, it's a very simple language in a lot of ways. I'll give you an example. Um, you can count to infinity in Podling very easily. So one, two, three is a day tray. Four, five, six is ed tree. Seven, eight, nine is o do tro. And Yasugapod is any number bigger than nine. Because <laughs> that's as high as podlings would ever need to count. Like it's a big yeah. number. You just say it's a big number. How, how many is over there? Uh, Yasugapod. It's big. It's a lot, you know? <laughs> so, you know, and, and Joe had lots of little things in there like that that I really love um, to, to keep it, you know, the reality of, of the people and the language. And so, you know, it was it was really, man, it was so fun to kind of just – delve in and try and like i say make that as second nature as uh, as i could post release um of age of resistance and of course there was a a two-year you know drum up to the release and of course there's tons of people waiting and i was there at the san diego comic-con showing actually i think you sat behind me i saw you sit down with javier and uh, a few other people and i sat to, next yeah. to hallie actually and that was a really wonderful screening um, oh man, how cool was that, right? Yeah, it was. It was just, and I'd met Hallie before uh, when we had toured um, Henson uh, in April, and it was, she's just an amazing person, just a, an amazing oh, yeah. person, she's so one kind. Of my, one of my favorite human beings, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, in the maybe the quiet now, things have sort of, I wouldn't say died down. Of course, there's so much excitement still and the show is still on and people are still watching. Do you think about Hup at all? Uh, I know you, obviously we, we, you've puppeteered other creatures and Skeksis and Gelflings in the show, but Hup is your main guy. Does, does he, do you think about him? And I don't mean that in a like, Oh, what's, what's Hup going to do in season two? Does the depth of his character, is that something that settles in your heart or makes noise maybe? Well, here's, here's the thing, you know, as an actor, you perform these characters and, you know, everybody has a different approach. Some people, they talk about their character in the third person or in the first person. I don't even know what, you know, when they say like, well, Hup wouldn't do that because Hup feels like, you know, like I, I don't, I'm not that. Um, you know, I definitely, like I say, I feel like I'm part of that character, but so many people contributed and I, you, you learn to, you know, making, making a living in the entertainment industry is hard. And the way you kind of survive mentally is, is really by not dwelling on stuff. Like you go to 200 auditions and you win one. And the only way that a person can come out of that and not feel like, a rejected horrible loser is to not think about the other 199. In fact, you don't think about all 200 until you get a call for that one that you do get. And then when you sign a contract and you know you have a job, then you can start to to release your mind to dream about, oh, what's this going to be like? I'm so excited. You know what I mean? So going into a job, that's that's what it's like. Coming out of this job, I'm kind of in that same situation. Like the, the idea of doing a second season is such a dream that I can't let myself think about it. You know what I mean? Like I'm not thinking about, well, maybe if Hup did this second season and, and then Deet was, you know, darkened and like I can't go down that road because, you know, it's too heartbreaking if it doesn't happen. So 
I am very purposefully pushing that possibility out of my mind and being really grateful and happy about what we did do. And, you know, the great thing about Netflix is it's just there. It's not like, it's not like the episode played and you missed it. So, you know, you've got to rent a DVD or something to, to see it. Um, it's, it's, um, you know, it's there for people to discover in their own time when they can. And so I just, um, you know, I, I love what we did. I love what I found, was able to find with that character. And I love that it has meaning to people and that, and that they care about him. But I'm, I'm, uh, for now, until I know for sure whether or not we're doing more, I'm trying to think about other stuff. <laughs> I, I completely understand. I completely understand. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, as and I'm sure as a husband and a father and you work and you have a lot on your mind. Uh, yeah, totally, totally. And but, uh, but I think with the marvel of The Dark Crystal, whether it's the original film or The Age of Resistance, is that it further echoes the sentiment and the reality and the truth of that stories mean something. Stories are important. We see ourselves in them and they can teach us lessons. And I think Hup is a really beautiful lesson um, and his story is beautiful. And uh, we would just like to say thank you for, and I know you, you, you have cited other people bringing him to life. Absolutely. But we know, or at least we feel like you, your voice and your main puppeteering for him is the heart and the soul for many of us. So we're very appreciative of it. I do have one final question. Um, and it's maybe it's more of a technical question. So the scene with, with Deet, uh, when they first meet up and he saves Deet's life and he's hanging by the the vine or whatever or the 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 web, and he's he's kind of like Frodo, I guess. Yeah. How, who are you puppeteering his like via radio controlled like his his mouth? What's going on in that scene? How did that scene happen? Well, you know, it's funny. That's a, you, you ask great questions, Jamie, because that's another one that we had this production meeting about how to shoot this. And I'm not usually in the production meetings, but but um, Rita asked me to come to it to explain like how we could do it and you know my thoughts on it. And so I was in this room with all you know in our lunchroom with all the you know production team, and I was saying you know like we could get some kind of a, like a, a cherry picker like a little scissor lift that I would be hanging my arm off of and I could kind of swing back and forth, but I'd want to be on like a cart so the cart can roll back and forth so I could travel more. Um, and, and then Rita said, well, can you, can you like get up on the table and show him? I was like, you mean like lay on the table in front of him? <laughs> I was like, really? So, so I had laid on this table in front of all these people I had really, you know, I mean, I, I'd known them for a couple months, but, but I, I felt very awkward, uh, showing them my idea for hanging off a table and swinging this puppet back and forth. But, but that's, we ended up doing that. Um, we ended up doing, um, all the up shots that you see of him, where you just see like from his waist or so to his head, I'm in a lift, um, hanging, you know, sort of upside, you know, half upside down, swinging my arm back and forth. And then there was a grip that was pulling me back and forth on this cart that was on top of the lift. And so you get some of that. So that's me performing, you know, the head and, and everything there. And then 
for the wider shots, yeah, there was a there was an RC version of him that I did do the voice and the and the um, mouth and everything for. Um, so so yeah, I got to I got to perform him both ways for that. But that was a fun one. That was a fun yeah. One. It's I love the magic of. I mean, there's so much to obviously discuss about not just the age of resistance, but puppetry in general and how it's done, how it's performed. You know, having your hand over your head raised sets, lowered sets, all of those things. And then you have scenes like this that are animatronic and there it's a lot of wizardry and magic happening to create that. And I know there's, there's a scene with a full body version of Rianne with the same way and he's moving and he's shaking and he's talking. It's very complicated. It's a very complicated thing. That's very effortless. And uh, I know Hup's swinging around for a while, and uh, it's yeah. just a really, it's a really great scene. But it's also fascinating to see him free of the floor. I would say. Yeah, yeah. They found a lot of ways to do that stuff over the course of the shoot, and I actually hadn't seen, I didn't see them shoot um, when uh, when Rihanna was upside down. Um, that the the opening of that episode uh, was it. Uh, five maybe uh i'm not sure which one is but yeah i think it's five where he's captured and we pull out and then the world you know the world 180s around and we realize he's hanging upside down i didn't see them shoot that and i'm watching and i was like wait what what just happened like how <laughs> like is neil's hand not in that puppet and um they had done such a nice job on that rc and, and gotten that cool body movement out of it that uh that he to- they totally fooled me um i really thought that the, that uh, a puppeteer had their hand in there um, but, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of magic and, and, um, you know, both in the storytelling and in the visuals, it just, you know, it's humbling. It's very humbling, man, to be a part of. Absolutely. Well, I have one final question I, before I ask it. I really, again, want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for taking the time. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long, long time. And, uh, look, I'm just. I'm just grateful that you thought of talking to an unknown puppeteer like me. (laughs) Touche. As a viewer, do you have a favorite episode of Age of Resistance? Oh, boy. Gosh, that's hard. You know, I I feel like I have to watch the series a bunch more times before I can really answer that because I love so many of them. Um, Five is really intense. You know, the ending of Five with with um, the ritual master and the general calling Celadon the Almadra and, you know, the Almadra dying and, and all that stuff. That's a really good one. Um, and 10 is really good too, you know, um, with the, with the Gelflings being victorious, but Deet, you know, being darkened and uh, one of those two, you know, has to be, um, probably my favorite for Hup, you know, I, I, I really liked, uh, the second and third episodes where he's really just on his journey with deep. Like that was fun to just mm-hmm. have those, those scenes. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think I can't, I can't, com- I can't fully commit. No worries. I understand. I understand. <laughs> I mean, I have some favorite episodes. I think four is one of my favorites for sure. But then I think about moments from the other ones. I'm like, Oh, but this is great. But yeah, four is good too. As you, as you said, the beauty of certainly the show is that it's there, it's on Netflix, and we can watch it over and over and over. So, yeah, man. Thank you so much again for coming on the show, and uh, we will talk to you again at some point. Thank you, Johnny. This is Philip. 
bringing our show to the close once more. You've been listening. Why do I even try? It's awful. I, why am I? <laughs> Terrible. Ha! Trial by Stone, the Dark Crystal Podcast, is a production of Three Point Edit. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can do so at darkcrystalpodcast at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. If you'd like to know more about the podcast, visit our website at www.darkcrystalpodcast.com. Thank you so much and stay tuned for the next episode of Trial by Stone.